Welcome to the latest episode of the Charlie Charlie One podcast with me, your host, Mark Wormrod. Now, today's guest on the podcast, like many that have gone before him, is a former Royal Marine. His name is Nick Goldsmith, and after being medically discharged from the Corps a number of years ago, he founded a business called Hidden Valley Bushcraft, based out of Bristol, which teaches a lot of the skills and techniques that I think as human beings, in my opinion at least, we've lost over the years. Things like how to navigate, how to start a fire out in the wilderness, how to eat and to catch your own food. It's something that Nick is very passionate about, And he has successfully turned that passion into a business and now he shares his knowledge and his experience with others. Now it's been a week or two since I met up with Nick in his home in Bristol and recorded this podcast. And since we spoke, Nick has shared some very positive and uplifting news with me. I'm not going to let you know what it is. It's not in the interview. So you have to stay to the very end. I'm going to share that news with you at the end. But before that... Let's get stuck into the interview. It's a long one. It's over an hour long, but it is a good one. So sit back, relax, enjoy it, and I'll let you know his good news towards the end. Nick, Hello. thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the podcast. You are, in fact, the first guest of 2020. Um, I've been dragging my heels a little bit since we went back to work, but thank you for inviting me here to your home. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest. And thank you for the conversation that we're about to have. Now, normally when I do these things, what I like to do is dig a little bit, not dig, that's the wrong word, delve a little bit into the guest's background, you know, a bit about why they joined the Corps, not the Army, the Air Force, that kind of thing. A little bit about their career, as much or as little as they want to share. But more importantly, what they do now, because what I'm trying to achieve is interviewing a group of individuals who have served, successfully transitioned, and are still, you know, striving and and succeeding. But also, a lot of the people that I'm looking at interviewing are helping other people during that process. So, let's just go back to the beginning, mate. Um, Childhood, I guess. I mean, we're here in Bristol now. Is, Is this, are you a... A born and bred Bristonian? Is that the right word? (laughs) Bristonian. Uh, I'm not. I am a Sussex boy, born and bred, strong in arm, thick in head, as (laughs) as the rhyme goes. Um, Yeah, I was born and bred over in Sussex, um, East Sussex in particular, in a little village called Buxted. Uh, It was, oddly enough, or not oddly enough, very, very similar to the one I now reside in here in Pensford, uh, in, in the Chew Valley in Bristol. He had uh, a U-shaped high street with two pubs, one church, one shop. If mm-hmm. you're not down the pub, they're talking about you down the pub. Okay. So it's the devil, you know, um, and and you know, uh, very rural. I think Sussex is one of our, if not the most heavily wooded county in the country. Um, and much of my childhood was spent on. <laughs> what you'd now probably class as micro-adventures like any mm-hmm. child in the 90s. You'd say goodbye to your mum, no mobile phone, you'd get on your BMX with your mates, you'd go three villages over to the west or wherever, 
you'd uh, naturally fall off, skin your knee, uh, deal with it and pick out all the grit. You'd have a fire, get chased off by a farmer. <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd go and stop at the local pub and fill up your water bottles or whatever you had on you from, from around the back. And then you'd cycle umpteen amount of miles all the way back home again and, and that was your sort of daily adventure I remember that well, and then when the street lights came on you knew it was tea time that that's exactly what, or, it. You, or you listened to your parents bellowing your name from the doorstep that's it or yeah. you'd be kicking a ball against the wall playing wall ball you know all that kind yeah. of stuff out in the street and, uh, so I did, did an awful lot of that um, an awful lot of it was spending time in the woods mm-hmm. um, I still remember catching my first ever fish I must have been about nine or ten down at Oast Farm uh, with a family friend of ours who took me fishing mm-hmm. and that sort of started a love for, for all things fishing for a while, course fishing, um, which later led into sea fishing and other bits and pieces. So between that and, and, and getting an air rifle and, and, and hunting rabbits and you know out on the local farms, it was always very rural. It was always hours and hours in the outdoors mm-hmm. and, and a non-stop adventures, falling out of trees and all that kind of good stuff, you know, yeah. and uh, having run-ins with with a lot of the um, large herds of fallow deer in, in Sussex. So you'd be creeping about the woods and you'd sort of disturb a whole herd of them and there'd be a stag kicking about in there. And if you're on the wrong time of the year, you know, you could find yourself with a bit of a standoff and, and uh, you could get yourself into a lot of trouble, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, lots of adventures. Um, led on to... Well, whilst uh, whilst this was this happening, I played an awful lot of rugby. Right. Um, Went to Lewis Tertiary College to play rugby, pretty much, I'm not going to lie. A lot of my teachers will testify that I probably had the intelligence and capacity to study the subject, just didn't want to. Just wanted to be outdoors mm-hmm. or playing rugby. Okay. Rugby, for me, was my outlet, was my... Every Saturday, that was that was me charging around on the field, loving it, I was playing at six or seven. Um, at about 16, I started playing for county made it sort of county captain played there for a bit and then around 18 or 19 had a big fallout with the whole thing um, mainly to do with at the time uh, the whole public school boy system you know kind of maybe a bit, bit of injustice there not not my parents not quite having the money to, to be able to send me to South Africa for a couple of grand on a tour and all that kind of thing right, it was, it was right. quite difficult so you, you sort of go from 18 captain to B team last five minutes in the rain mm. on the bench so, so it was a bit of that and I was a bit lost and I was a bit like well do I want to carry on on this journey um, I still wanted to have a crack at professional rugby mm-hmm. and I played I think I played fairly well at college um, but I I felt short of the mark, you know, for being picked up by an academy or anything like that. So that was a big bit of pill to swallow. And that's what caused me to go on that search for that next thing that was going to give me that camaraderie, that team spirit, that sort of hardship that I, quite frankly, really enjoyed. (laughs) Um, Went to see my cousin, second cousin, uh, Beachy, we'll call him, um, for this. And... uh, I remember before I'd even got 10 feet inside of their farmhouse, um, his cousins on my dad's side, there was a picture in the middle of this farmhouse um, cottage, was a picture on the wall, two Chinooks, and a whole bunch of guys dressed in black with MP5s and green lids. Right. So I saw this picture and was just instantly enamoured with the thing. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know what it was, but I was like, I want some of that. That looks cool. And Gucci. That is, that is Gucci, turbo Gucci. So I went and had a chat with this albeit slightly mad character. Um, and 
I left that room, that was it. He'd, he'd sold the core to me. Mm-hmm. I had this new mission in life. So I dropped all the meat. At this point, I was about 19 years of age. I had a 19-inch neck, and I was about 16 and a half stone. Um, wow. I was an absolute mutant um, at the time, for, <laughs> and probably on track for, for, for my previous goal. Obviously, having fallen short, that was, you know, I had to right, switch fire, drop all the meat down to about 13 stone racing snake mm-hmm. um, lots of endurance based fears lots of throwing myself in ponds and lakes and <laughs> really so just you, you made your mind up then that you wanted to join the core and that you were just completely flipping that it that was completely it now I'd blown a knee up the year before um, and had a knee up and that was a bit of a difficult thing so initially the core like can't touch you until you're about 2021 20, here oh you told them yeah so okay. I went straight to the recruitment office mm-hmm. and they were like right come back here's what you need to work on so went away trained myself to within an inch of my life as much as I possibly could for a civilian <laughs> the locals were seeing me running with rucksacks wet at midnight through you know lads were coming out spilling out of the local nightclub and I was running past with a rucksack full, right. of, full of weight and, and piss wet through where I'd just come out of a pond somewhere okay. I was a- absolutely potty mm-hmm. about my next goal had to achieve it at all costs um, parents weren't over the moon made me get a trade which I'm now thankful for so whilst whilst this kind of couple of years passed and I was getting myself ready I became a qualified bricklayer all right I only ever built about five houses uh, or worked on five houses and then decided that nah this is you know I'm still definitely on track for the core I was running to site uh, working all day then running home again this is a quite a a, a kind of well-known story for a lot of lads Mm -hmm. um and it, it just spurred me on to, to work even harder at what it is I wanted to do. Um, the time came, I got to go to Limpstone, did my PRMC. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not that it makes an ounce of difference once you start recruit training, but I, I came pretty much top on my PRMC. Recited all my core history, it was absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, core pissed. Um, started training, and uh, <laughs> training is training, in it? It's hard quite quickly got brought down <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I say that to everybody and sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed yeah because you know I did it when I was 17 and I, yeah. found, I found it really Christ, hard 17 yeah. you madman it was it was really hard and you know it's hard to admit that sometimes because a lot of people go no it wasn't that bad and I'm like no. what training were you doing yeah. I was hanging out every day <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so you found it difficult constantly not feeling like you're good enough constantly mm-hmm. struggling on different bits and pieces and I was you know there's always that thing in training that someone's a biff on and the irony is now the things I've really chosen to focus on more than ever and my class as my strengths are probably those things that back then I was weaker at that's interesting so one of the things was uh, was map reading I was a map reading biff it was Same. amazing yeah me too so yeah. now um, I'm still a biff by the way I, and, and now I you know I even specialise in uh, specialise in micro nav and uh, natural navigation so reading the landscape around us the trees yeah. puddles all sorts of stuff to mm-hmm. give you indicators of, uh, of direction um, you know obviously the stars and all that kind of good stuff but um yeah, I just look back and I smile thinking about that time. There, There is never going to be the ideal situation. Everybody, even the strongest who goes on to be King's Badgeman, will struggle at something at some point in training. And mm-hmm. it's about how you deal with that adversity when you come up against it as to whether you stay with the troop or whether you need to go back 
two weeks, pick mm-hmm. up a new troop, which again is another massive mental challenge for some lads. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get through the whole thing in one go, but yeah, you know there were definitely times where I was probably having to. I think it was um, it was purely a mental thing. I think it was week twenty one. I'd never struggled and never failed a single rope with that bottom field test. For some reason, on the day of the race, I psyched myself out. Right. And I was one shift from the top mm-hmm. and I couldn't get there. Otherwise, four arms were gone. I was going to just fall to the bottom with all my kit on. Absolutely broken. Did the rest of the uh, the tests, um, the, the, the carry, the, the regain, never a single problem with the regain. Mm-hmm. Did all that stuff, fine. Just that one rope. Came back, did the reset that afternoon same thing happened passed everything else wow. could run forever with someone on my back did everything that was fine mm-hmm. just that one row got really down about it it was obviously a Friday so I went home that weekend I literally took the train back sat at home had a chat with my old man about it so I kind of opened up that I'd, I'd struggled with something for the first time in training I really kind of like oh my god went back again and just with a totally new approach, and I remember listening to the, the Chili Peppers in, in the uh, in the you know in the sort of section uh, accommodation before we left. And I remember getting down to the, the bottom field and kind of going, "By the way, I'm trying to see okay. and breathe." And before you know it, boom, top of the rope, done. Really? Yeah, like not even a nothing. But what? Because you were just distracted t- by the song in your totally head and rela- not thinking totally about relaxed it? of mind. Yeah, you overthink things, so we're conditioned training conditions you to constantly respond to duress and to perform you know i'd say that that is the defining element of any boot neck and i mean boot neck compared to a lot of the other services is that our ability to just switch it on and make things happen mm-hmm. and to what we you know you coined the term to cuff mm-hmm. no cuff too tough so actually if you give us the task of dwelling on something for hours and hours and hours and hours we just want to go we just want to make it happen yeah. stick me in it you know mm-hmm. give me the adversity put me in the deep end and I'll perform because I'm conditioned conditioned to do so mm-hmm. and, and also there must be you could argue nature or nurture there is part of you is already cut from a certain cloth mm-hmm. that can do that at birth or I don't know <laughs> who knows because we all come from different backgrounds to join the call um, and that and that is what I needed. I just needed to be just thrown into it. But because I'd had this kind of oh yeah, Bonfield test is coming up and coming yeah. up, and you talk to the other guys ahead of you in the in the scrang queue, mm-hmm. you know, when you're when you're in um, in the galley and things like, that, and they're like, oh, have you got your Bonfield next week? Oh, make sure you do this yeah, and that, yeah, you yeah. know. And you, you do so yourself out. So so that was the kind of sticking point. Everything else went fairly to plan. Um, probably no better or no worse than any other other person. And I, I managed to finish and get my unit of choice. You know, get a lid on my head, um, and I went to four or five. Okay. Well, uh, straight out the door into um, beat up for Herrick nine. So this was two thousand and seven, eight. So started in seven, June, July eleventh, I think, and then finished twenty second February two thousand and eight. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. and then. Uh, Leckenfield did some driver training managed yeah. to uh, place. mate I didn't even drive a car I was useless yeah. so I managed to get that all done right the way up to Lorry um, God knows how they passed me off on that stuff and then straight off to unit straight into all the um, beat up ready readiness exercises Catterick Otterburn mm-hmm. all over the place Cooper, I mean, you know we did all the, the range packages everything um, obviously the tour happened uh, everything you signed up for and more you know um, I'll give you a snapshot of day one 
of my first ever uh, time on the ground and I'm sure a lot of lads listening to this will be able to kind of um, or some of those who maybe were there will actually be able to, to kind of you know um, connect with this it, it made it into the Globe and Laurel so you know mm-hmm. it wasn't a, wasn't a non-event um, right. it was second patrol day in Sangin in uh, Fob Jackson and I'm with um, Three Troop Whiskey Company, four five, and a point Point Sprog, <laughs> right? Valen and Mini Me, twos up on that treat. Yeah, um, we head out into the green zone for a brackets acclimatisation slash fighting <laughs> patrol. We take everyone in the kitchen sink. We get the speech about all the good stuff, you know. Uh, ammo and water when it comes to the slaughter. All the kind of big. Mm-hmm. speeches all the kind of you know really everyone's really pumped everyone goes out wants to get wants to get stuck in wants to do the job wants to show the people that we can provide protection for them wants to kind of like you know really let the enemy know that we're here now um, put our authority on the situation and, and kind of push these guys out so we can bring some stability to uh, to the DC and to the area is the plan straight away I think within that first day, without trying to go off on one too much, uh, saw us fixing bayonets, saw us be ambushed at about 40, 50 metres. Mm-hmm. I was actually facing the wrong way, herring bone at the time, on a knee, <laughs> facing back on towards the fob. We walked smack into the killing area. Um, they'd put it all together quite nicely, actually. I think they were Chechnyans from memory. Um, they obviously came off worse, ultimately. Mm-hmm. We killed a, killed a major Green Zone commander and opened the whole thing up on that day. I uh, say we, the troop, the whole troop, so three sections. Um, very cleverly, they, they hastily placed a metal dish that they just used to eat with in the ground, covered it over. So the guy at the front, we were we were acting as a troop snake, mm-hmm. found it, went firm, everyone snaked out across this field, alternate arcs. And to the right of us, or behind me, effectively in this field, was a small wall with a compound, with a screen of maize that had been left at full height, and the stuff we was knelt in was all nicely cut in mm-hmm. the killing area. Right. And they were lined up behind this wall with uh, RPKs, PKMs, AKs, mm-hmm. AK variants. Dog came out, started barking. I still distinctly remember the uh, the PRR uh, coming on, and one of the lads fired a mini flare at the dog just to chin it off because it was just barking. I mean, right. the mini flare is much of a muchness. Dog's pretty loud <laughs> just to get this thing gone. As soon as that mini flare went off, the first burst came over the wall, mm-hmm. and it was so close. I thought one of the lads had ND'd. I looked around like, what the? You know, one yeah, of the lads yeah. has ND'd here. Mm-hmm. Just remember looking over at uh, Lockie, the stripey, who was literally cigarette in mouth. He sort of spat his cigarette out, shouted contact, span round, and off we went. Mm-hmm. And that was it, and that started. And it was like so much coral dite being chucked out and, and, and weapon smoke you couldn't see the top of the wall quite quickly mm-hmm. and I'm sure as hell they couldn't exactly see where we were and probably just as well because we were sticking out mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we really were uh, in the wind um, quite quickly the company sergeant major the uh, the army attached sergeant major um, the aptly named Mr Fat Al <laughs> uh, no- okay. noticed the discrepancy on the map and the GPS made a quick um, changed to that and called in some 105 from 6k away which promptly landed once we'd had to peel under fire yeah um just to give you an idea even the medic had seven mags down at this point wow we peeled into a ditch behind and this artillery came in 
at probably then just under or around 100 meters in front of us. Mm -hmm. It was terrifying. Okay, so some really, really big, loud, percussive uh, air displacement, big bangs, things, mm -hmm. things happening. And then we had to make a run for it into the river to do a fighting withdrawal back up to the little PB that we were, we were naturally going to try to go to next anyway. Okay. At this point, a couple of our lads had been hit. Uh, my section commander had taken one through the shoulder and another lad had basically had a round pretty much grazed down through his neck. Um, and it was kind of a real wake-up call for a lot of us. It was like, wow, this is, this is real, you know. Mm -hmm. We regrouped and headed back up to the FOB and we were we were ambushed another couple of times left and right. Okay. Um, with the final the final finisher being that we pushed one section out wide to try and change our shape on the ground from the troop snake into a into a kind of better better position. Somehow they got between the two and tried to initiate a blue on blue. Now we're very lucky that that didn't go down mm -hmm. because it was right in the failing light where your your sort of monocle NVG element is kind of coming online, yeah, but your eyes are still kind of good. They, you know, they hats off to them. They picked it night. They picked yeah. it well. Um, so that was kind of that. And then getting back in, I definitely felt different from then moving forwards. And every day had that flavour to it. Every day was one or two or three uh, run-ins with the enemy. Whether it was in the maze fields up close and personal, whether it be clearing compounds or sometimes on the vehicle mounted patrols because of course back then we were heading out day and night you'd be you'd be getting stuck into all sorts so it was it was uh very kinetic to start with about just over two months two and a bit months in i destroyed my knee jumping across an irrigation ditch with a uh, 70 kilo kit plus on um tried to shrug it off best i could something was definitely not right mm -hmm. i could get away with it without the kit on as soon as I put the kit, the full weight of the kit on, it was like agony. Right. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, "This is," you know. So I went. I had the chat. You know, you've got to be mature about it. You're trying to hide an injury. You're just going to become statistic at that time in that place. I can look back at it now with the maturity that I now have, mm -hmm. and realise it was the best thing was for me to go, and for everyone else, and for everyone else. Well, and that's ultimately why why you're making that decision. But but at the time, on a selfish level, you do not want to leave those lads. No, of course whatsoever. you don't. No, I did not want to give up my place in that section or you know I was absolutely beside myself sent me back to Bastion after failing like a, a duck walk thing okay a test a test yeah, yeah. Uh, turned out so I'd, I'd uh, split some cartilage I'd um, gone nearly the entire way through my cruciate lig per posterior cruciate ligament at the back yeah so three quarters of the way through I chomped through that and uh, I put a massive contusion, so a crack on the top of my shin bone. So when I put all the kit on, it was basically compressing, compressing the joint together and then everything would get very unhappy with itself. Gotcha. So I would sort of limp around the urban patrols, take a knee, and then when it came to get up and move again, it would just be absolute mm. baggage. So that was that. And it felt like a very non-combative, very benign injury compared to the stuff that had been happening mm. and was continuing to happen. So the night I got back to the UK, that was the end of that tour for you? That was it, that yeah. was it. So so I just had two and a half months of very high speed and then it took a different flavour. So I got back and straight away, if I'm deadly honest, I was having, you know, I sort of, we landed at, um, we got redirected to Birmingham and I still had dust on my helmet and I'd been in a firefight 24 hours before and now suddenly I'm back in, in, in Birmingham and mm -hmm. a police escort came to collect us for mm -hmm. our own benefit, mm -hmm. you know, because it wasn't a popular war. 
No, I know, I know. So that was that was interesting. Um, we went back up to four five, and it was grim, and nobody wanted to be there. And there, obviously, you've got hardened troop, which were lads who were desperately trying to rehab themselves, who'd been injured on previous tours, trying to get back out the door. Um, and you had a mixture of those and brand new lads coming up the box, joining base company, who were chomping at the bit to Desperate get out as well. Out, you know, yeah. so mm-hmm. so I quite quickly got told, look, you're realistically looking at months and months of rehab here to get this back back to the point where you can solder at that level again. Mm-hmm. You could pretty much kiss this tour goodbye. Yeah. These lads are going to be going out the door before you. You know, uh, try and impart some knowledge. That's all you can do. Gutted, absolutely beside myself. Yeah. And the names just start turning up on the TV screen. And all you can do is just, you know, volunteer again and again to carry the coffins. Little did I know that that was going to have the same effect on me, pretty much as some of the sort of stuff on the ground. You so know. that's what you did when you came back. I carried coffin after coffin after coffin, uh-huh. or, or attended firing party, or took part in any way I humanly possibly could. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this conversation recently with someone actually, and I sort of said openly, you know, I I never claimed back any of the money on JPA because I felt. Felt part of me definitely felt that it should have been me, you know that that survivor's guilt was already yeah. really gripping me tightly. Not that anybody had noticed it, um, and by the time it was being noticed, I think it was probably too late, you know. So behaviour was starting to spiral. Mm-hmm. I put in for a change of unit uh, just as everyone had got back. I went to Cyprus, the decompression uh, process to be part of that team. So I never actually got decompressed myself, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't even speak to the Pardo. Skip decompression somehow fell through the net there. But I got to go to to Bloodhound camp and see my lads come back, okay. which to me was very important. Mm-hmm. I saw them once more at medals parade, and then pretty much um, went off on my new journey, which was the dangly carrot of K spec. Corporal within two years. Okay. What a load of rubbish. Was Bra- it really? Branch liars were at, the height of, <laughs> were at the height of their power back then, and I was sold a doozy. Well, not really. I, I agreed to do it as long as I got to go to pool. Okay. Because part of me felt like, you know, if you've got an itch, you need to give it a scratch and go see what life is like at pool. Did you pass the course? I did. I oh, did. I it's the only one that no one's ever passed. Wee-hee! <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I walked smack into that. For anyone who doesn't know that's listening, the K3s is a chef's course. The only one that no one's ever passed. This is just a joke. It's outrageous. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was your that was your kind of condition. So that yeah, so that saw me going down to Plymouth and getting loaded onto a course. Some of the lads like myself were sort of there of our own choosing and others were mm-hmm. had pretty much been press ganged into it and didn't want to be there. Either way, it made no odds to me. I was at that point very lost. I was doing the course and going through the motions by day and going Lone Ranger into Plymouth if nobody else would go with me in the evenings and drinking, and drinking hard right. and just really not giving much of a monkeys about anything, especially not myself. Mm-hmm. Coupled with overtraining in the gym. It's like a lethal combination. So you yeah. get back in at four in the morning, you then get straight on a treadmill as soon as soon as like you seven in the seven as soon as the gym's open you're in bang mm-hmm. out eight miles trying to purge yourself. What is that doing to your heart? And that and would, the rest of your body. And that, that would be pretty much the trend for the next until until sort of diagnosis two thousand fourteen until about then and probably a bit beyond that into the recovery center. That was kind of the sketch. Okay. Um, while I was at Paul, I managed to do another, uh, go out the door another sort of five times, uh, four times 
in one capacity and two times in another. Mm -hmm. um, tours of Afghan and supporting the squadrons in all of their different capacities. So whether it's uh, off to the jungle, I think my first ever trip to the jungle was with Mr. Jason Fox okay. and some of his chaps. Mm -hmm. um, and then Norway and uh, yeah, Oman, Belize, all kinds of places. Anyway, exotic places, very good. Um, Feet didn't really touch the ground, wasn't really in the UK for very long at any given time, was constantly attached because you don't really have the top cover <laughs> as an attached rank or didn't back then. I, I'm, I'm now learning that processes have changed and things have moved on a bit and mm -hmm. they are kind of highlighting the fact that sports staff do get absolutely pushed pillar to post when they're down there because you know you, you, you don't belong to any one squadron so you don't have a set rotation you can actually work off of. Okay. It's just so-and-so squadron wants two guys for this Got it. bang 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 so you are bouncing out the door constantly I'd met Louise uh, at the end of the chef course um, ish and had started to put my feet back down on the ground a little bit and that really did help me bought the woodland around 2012 and that was really the beginnings of what became Hidden Valley Bushcraft and all the stuff that we do now um, so let's talk about this then oh. yeah so yeah. we've covered your career uh, and bits and pieces on there. I'd really like to talk about this now, what it is you do now. Yeah. Because um, yes, I sit back and I watch from afar. I'm much more as comfortable. A, <laughs> as a social media stalker. Oh, God. Um, stalking everybody, seeing what everyone's doing, looking for some feel good stories that I can talk about and do podcasts on. And, and this was one of them, mate. I, I, I see what you do. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be up front with you from the start. This is not my world. When, yeah. when you talked about being a kid, going the bike rides, the kicking the ball. I relate to all of that. Yeah. I relate to being a complete biff when it comes to navin with a map. Yeah. But what you do now, I'm not going to say too much about it. That that's not my world. So I'd I'd be really interested for you to tell us what it is you do now, how you've transitioned, you know, and and where it's going. Okay. So I think I think fundamentally, um, bought the woodland in 2012. It became instantly. If you think about you know some of the nuts and bolts of my childhood a safe place for me to be mm -hmm. so I was down there all the time and I mean all the time um, to describe the woodland it's one half a re-entrant going into so it's like a mini hidden valley funnily enough into okay. the wider Chu Valley it needed a lot of love it hadn't been touched or worked for about 40 mm -hmm. years it was um, you know in the desperate need of, of turning around it was uh, just past the point of being sort of habitat rich it was kind of falling into disarray really um, and so I took it on <laughs> had it in my head that I was going to do the whole thing with hand tools only how big how big was this traditionally it's only a couple of acres it's uh, it's just over two and a bit acres of of like a little copse we, mm -hmm. we, we'd taken on um, it started off with me pretty much working myself to pieces so it's almost another form of self-harm with the whole fizz thing i would just work, work and work and work, work mm -hmm. like eight nine ten hours of just graft sweating and then sit down with a bottle of rum around a campfire and just stare into the flames and just trying to find the answers to, to questions i i didn't have the answers for i didn't have the emotional tool set to deal with any of that stuff at the time but you had transitioned outside at this point had you? no 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 so this is kind of the, the intermittent bit between so i already had the woodland yeah and then and then after 2014, it came off the back of that last tour. The site nurse had already come out and she said, uh, on tour, she said, look, I'm not going to pull you from the tour. However, um, you know, yourself and others have been flagged up 
you need to promise me you're going to come and have a chat with me afterwards mm-hmm. and I'll let you finish this tour okay and I was like okay cool so did that came back she asked me about three questions fell apart diagnosed mm-hmm. and uh, having spoke to somebody else was then diagnosed and then pretty much spent the next seven months in that woodland uh, on leave I had so much leave stacked up yeah. it just wasn't fun like illegal amounts of leave <laughs> I needed to take and they needed to have case conferences and try to work out just what the hell to do with me because I was off the Richter crazy at that point um, so yeah I spent a lot of time down there soul searching and, and it really if I'm honest saved my life because at a point where I was completely at the bottom of the barrel I still had something to do somewhere to be right even if it was on my own, I didn't want to surround myself with anyone else. I didn't want to be, and I'm, look, I'm not going to lie, I'm not a big fan of, I don't function well in London. I don't function well on trains in large public spaces, mm-hmm. but there I can be, I can be 110% of myself and operate at full ramming speed again mm-hmm. to a degree. I just can't do it for days on end. Right. <laughs> um, so I was down there and Louise was increasingly worried and we went through the transitional process, which looked like this. I was lucky enough to be selected to go to what was then Hasler Company, mm-hmm. which is now the Naval Recovery Service Center. NRS. Yeah, <laughs> Naval Recovery Some Service Center. Right. Well, that's what it is now. Because, uh, And at the time, um, I had a fantastic sergeant major, Jim Morris, who now does an awful lot of work with the RMA he's the transition support officer he is Uncle Jim so yep. he is awesome um, and I'm not sure when we first met he entirely knew what to do with me but he got it something about him was just willing to help you know mm-hmm. and it was just it was just incredible from the world I'd just come from which was if it's broken get me another you know very ops driven couldn't give a monkey's mm-hmm. right if he's broke get me another boom you know very cold and calculated and sharp and hard mm-hmm. and to be honest look they're a massively high achieving group um, and it was an honor to work with a group at the time, but it's not geared up for the welfare thing. Of course it's not because right. it's an ops driven beast. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't achieve what it achieves if it was, it would probably change the way or the dynamic down there. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. I'm sure they are working on elements, but it's, it's yeah, it's a long process for that one. So, um, so I found myself in the recovery center day to day, waking up, having to go to the gym to report. Suddenly I'm surrounded by these amazing people, Mr. Mark Jones, 360 Rehab, Exmouth in the clinic. Okay, he was my physio. He was a Royal Navy uh, Chief Petty Officer. He's still a good friend now. Mm-hmm. And his job was to, along with the team there of physios, try to make me function mechanically again, because I was carrying lots of niggly injuries that had just turned into just massive chronic things okay. like that. there's no ligaments on the left hand side of my ankle at the moment and well they're going to be in the future but that was kind of a thing that then caused a knee hip shoulder everything was just jacked up locked up and I hadn't been looking after myself or stretching or anything so I didn't care about myself I was just working and working and working breaking working working breaking right so uh, his task was to try and unpick me that way and invariably they sent me to what is what is known down there as over the road which is dcmh okay yep. so engaging with mental health services um which is something i would now massively advocate and i do i do push people towards engaging with uh, openly um and i did that pretty much for just under four years till they deemed me sort of 
sane enough to pretty much leave service ish. Right. Um, albeit transitioned into the Till service uh, and went from there. So um, during my time there, I had this idea, had this conversation, and it kind of went along the lines of look, you're going to be leaving service. What is, you need to start thinking about what it is you want to do. I was beside myself. I was like, all I wanted to do is be a bootleg right mm-hmm. now. This is this is my identity. This is this is me. Yeah. Um, well, what do you mean? I mean, you're not going to be serving anymore. Like, you know, you've got to think about putting bread and butter on the table, and you know, and the compensation process is a massive one. And yeah, and and, and I'm not scared to say I'm still going through it now. I don't receive a single penny of GIP or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it causes massive pressure on us buying closed doors. Now this is where the Romans charity comes in. Good eggs that they are. After this conversation, it kind of led to a boiling point where, and I was an angry boy back then, especially, and I flashed and said, <laughs> he said, well, you've got to work out what it is you want to do. And I said, I don't know, spend all day in the woods, it's gobbing off and that's not gonna make me a living, is it? And he literally said, get out of my office, come back with an answer. And I pretty much nearly took the door off the hinges, stormed off. Google is your friend, mm-hmm. making money from small woodland. I looked at everything from charcoal to firewood production to, but there's no sustainability in such a small woodland in any of these things. Um, and the answer was staring me right in the face. It was going back to my roots. It was going back to, uh, <laughs> um, you know, practicing these time-tested practices of making whistles and crafting things and 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 using the natural world about you, around you and understanding it in a, in a new way and with much more depth than I ever had before. So how was I going to do that to become a bushcraft instructor and set up my own bushcraft company? How how was any of that going to look? So I went naturally on the LCAS providers list. Now the provider at the time, who I won't name, um, was the only one on there. And I wanted to see what else was out there, so I did some research. And this was to get you, gain you qualifications? To gain you qualifications and stuff. So you can quite imagine the response when I went back down to the office and I went, bushcraft. And the employee sergeant, the employment sergeant went, what? I went, bushcraft, you know, Ray Mears sort of stuff. And I just got looked at like I had three heads. Can you get qualifications in that? That's what I would think. Don't you just go out and learn that yourself? But I I had no idea you could qualify in it. So this is it, this is it. So um, I didn't want the one on the LCAS providers list because I had found one that to me, absolutely, and I'm still glad of my decision today, suited, um, it was was the best thing since sliced bread Mm -hmm. going at that time. So I had to then try to use my funding that I had accrued over how many years of service, mm-hmm. which was X amount of thousand pounds to pay for this. Okay. Of course, if it's not on the LCAS providers list, someone's got to take a punt on you, mm-hmm. you've got to explain why, and so on and so forth. So this is where the Rawlings charity listened to what I was saying, took on board, because I don't think it had been done before. I've you know, we had, to create, we had to create a bespoke pathway that hadn't been, been done before, mm-hmm. Uh, of education for me to be released um, X amount of days per month to go and do this course to get onto the level four that I desperately needed I had to pass a level three with this school so I loaded onto the level three and four literally finished one roll straight onto the other so it was kind of uh, mm. that cuffing thing again where <laughs> you better pass the level three otherwise yeah. you're not gonna and and you know and this is taxpayers money someone stumped up this mm-hmm. charitable money to pay for me to be here so mm-hmm. I'm like Christ I can't do this I go along, I do the interview, I go straight into my level three, 
and then I roll straight onto my level four. The level four was almost a year long, six days of every month in the woods, learning intensively under Mr. John Ryder uh, of Woodcraft School, who continues to be a friend and uh, an, an absolutely brilliant, brilliant organization and very much does educational uh, experiences um, and, and kind of education is there is there, I would say is their kind of leading point so national certificates in further education uh, I think they also do chainsaw qualifications and other bits and pieces anyway so I, I went on what turned out to be one of if not the last ever full instructors course and when I say that I mean to get the same level of qualifications now you probably have to do it over about three years oh, wow. and at the same sort of money per price per course okay okay so of the 13 people that went on the course I think think roughly six or seven passed, managed to get everything done in one go first time round. Okay. Um, it's not a duty attend and of course this was another wake up call. Civvy Street isn't duty attend. <laughs> no, nobody wa- nobody walks not. out and says there's yeah. the answers I'll be back in 10 minutes. Yeah. That does not happen yeah. and especially not with John and rightly so you know because he's what he's doing there is he's putting his name against you mm-hmm. when you go into the industry. Uh, and he's making sure and ensuring that that absolute quality is there. Right. Now there are some people that say that his qualifications are too difficult, or it should a calling for it to be a level five because it's you know way above and beyond what mm-hmm. you should you know the basic requirements to get a level four are X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. It's so many guided learning hours, self learning, and it's so many. So you've got like five hundred guided learning hours, and then you've got so many hours of self self evaluation and stuff you've got to do self-study and then you've got to write papers and it's all got to be signed off it's a bit like sort of half a degree mm-hmm. and then um, and John's is very in-depth or was very very in-depth because he was condensing all this stuff into this amazing course and uh, compared to other providers who are out there who are also delivering a level four you might not get all of that content so you might not yeah. have all that knowledge is the way I look at it uh-huh. So as long as you've got the ability to retain the information, to apply what you're being le- you know, taught straight away, which again, as Royal Marines in particular, I think we're, we're pretty good at audio-visual kinesthetic. We get shown something and you, you grasp it. Yeah. Okay, or you don't progress on through training. And that again is how we maintain that standard. So in the same way, um, I really enjoyed that course. And, and suddenly, this is when I really started to see the transition beginning. So I had gone from, as a bootneck, uh, at one point in my career, soldiering, uh, and we're not talking about this today, <laughs> at a very high level, at the mm-hmm. sort of premiership football right. of soldiering, I was, I was kind of working alongside these guys doing some of that stuff at one point, mm-hmm. to not being able to remember my wallet, ID card, and water bottle to get to the gym in the morning. I'd have to go down the corridor, back into my room, lock mm-hmm. myself out my room, go to reception. I was going through all these processes of just being couldn't even walk to the naffy in a straight line without taking a convoluted route mm-hmm. blue tack over the phone you know just completely bonkers mm-hmm. completely bonkers and and really struggling with everything to suddenly being able to retain all the latin uh, names chemical constituents the relationship to us as humans from all the different plants the mm-hmm. historical context behind it like everything was just going in mm-hmm. And so that's when I really started to feel the effects of the transition. And something that one of the other key people down there at the time, Mr. Harry Mather, um, amazing guy, he was acting in the sort of role of a, a social worker. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds simple, but he'd say, look, do more of what's working and less of what doesn't. Yep. Uh, and, absolutely. And so to me, the proof was in the pudding. For me, I needed to be in the woods. Mm-hmm. Now, I've said this before on other, other bits and pieces, 
and I, I said I wouldn't try and repeat myself too much today, but for at least 80,000 years, okay, mm -hmm. the cleanest, best environment any of us can be in is that from whence we came. Mm -hmm. Now, use the analogy, you don't put a poorly fish in dirty water. The cleanest water anyone can be in is that environment out yeah. there. Okay, because that's what you've evolved. It's the reason you, 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 know, you produce oils to waterproof yourself, you grow hair on your face and you know not well some ladies do <laughs> some of us do and um yeah so so i i had to be i had to be amongst it um and so it was the right environment so that's a good start point isn't it mm -hmm. if you if you go into something and you're truly passionate about what you're doing mm -hmm. okay and you're willing to put in the time and the effort i have a little uh, thing that i sort of say to people now when i go and do talks and bits and pieces and I think it's you know spot on, and it is basically that effort over time driven by passion equals results. Hundred percent. Effort over time on its own doesn't get there. No. Effort over time driven by absolute passion mm -hmm. to do something and achieve something is what gets you there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you're willing to put in time Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, day, night doesn't matter. Willing to drive something and really make it work, you can do it. You, the world's your oyster, and you can get that and make it happen and I think that's a really important message we need to get out there and I, I, I spread the same message I and mean, it's because you're passionate about it that it doesn't seem a big deal being up to 2am reading about what you're doing because you love it but what you know a lot of people that I speak to military or, or otherwise chase money yeah. oh you know if I do that I'm going to earn this much money I can go on three holidays a year and then they tell you how much they hate it and I'm like it's because you're just doing it for money. You don't care about what you're doing. Like when you're in the core, you know, if, if you want to join the core, given how hard it is, if you really, really want to, and you pass, that's the guys that pass out. Yep. The other ones just go, oh, that look good. I'd like to see that just from the pub and they don't make it. Yeah. And it's the same in civvy jobs. You, you know, people that earn a hundred thousand pound plus a year are miserable Hate you know lives. running around London <laughs> they, they finish work at 8 at night go straight for a pint go home they're back in the office at 9 yeah. the next day 6 to 7 days a week slave to the machine and you've got so much money but you can never enjoy it mm. you're not passionate about it but you've you've found what you're passionate about and I think I think yeah you've absolutely nailed it and the, the, the knock on effect of that is if we, if we could you know if we can expand on this a bit more you go into something chasing a dangly carrot I call it a dangly carrot. Yep. Okay, so if someone dangles that carrot, so it's a really shiny carrot, and you mm -hmm. go, oh, that would be a quick fix, that would be a quick win. Mm -hmm. And you go and chase that. And of course, you're then deriving and moving away from that thing that you truly love and you truly want to do. Mm -hmm. And quite quickly, you find yourself in a position where, and I've seen this with so many people and, and private clients who I take away for weekends and do micro ventures and one to one stuff. And, you know, they might be, as you said, very fluent doing very well on paper um, absolutely hate what they do mm -hmm. and they say well I'm doing it so my kids can have a better life yeah. okay and then those kids grow up doing exactly the same thing so their kids can have a better life yeah. and so on and so forth and in the words of Mr. Alan Watts it's all wretched no vomit it never mm -hmm. gets there yeah at what point do you draw a line in the sand and definitively say mm -hmm. I'm gonna do something that I truly want to do in life mm -hmm. okay so this is where I think this is personally just speaking now one of the key things that we have in the veteran community especially for those who are whiz whiz miss uh, the gang who are mm -hmm. wounded injured sick medically discharged is you've reached a point where you're either in crisis point or whatever it is. you've you've had a look at the bottom of the barrel and you can see what that looks like 
and that's the key is you realize there is a bottom so if you realize there is a bottom there's mm -hmm. only one way back from that right 100%. okay and you're willing to take a punt and and back yourself and reach for that other branch blindly mm -hmm. if need be but but with passion mm -hmm. okay and put that time in to get to that other branch you you're not kind of like held to that oh yeah but if I do that I won't earn the white money and I'm mm -hmm. really worried about you don't care mm -hmm. you're in a place where you, you're kind of risk taking mm -hmm. entrepreneurially you're, you're in a, your psychology is better you are better designed to do that than the majority of other people yeah. you know and, and I think that's actually something that we see as a weakness is actually a, a, a strength mm -hmm. of ours but it's about taking that positive mindset turning that around and and <laughs> growing a growth mindset, mm -hmm. you know. And when you start to put those goggles on and look at the world, you realise actually you're in a you're in a really good position. You're not trapped in a, mm -hmm. in the job that's earning you so much money. It's supporting your entire family, yeah. and you're bound to it for another fifteen years mm -hmm. until you can maybe give yourself permission to have your life back. Right. No, you can you can stand up and take that and make that change right here and right now. Mm -hmm. It's quite it's quite a big thing, you know. And it, and it takes guts to do it, but. Yeah. You've, you've done it you know you're living proof of it well we've made the start so we um, we set up Hidden Valley Bushcraft um, I designed the logo myself I was walking around the base asking 100 people at a time you know about the composition of the logo and doing all that sort of stuff we trademarked it okay we threw in absolutely hundreds hundreds of pounds of our own money mm -hmm. like any any person entrepreneur starting up um, the Royal Marines charity helped me to further my qualifications once I passed that initial kind of jumping through the hoops. It wasn't enough for me. I needed I needed more, needed more knowledge. High standards. So I applied, well, this is it. I applied for the Ethnobotany Level 4, which is purely the study of trees, plants, flowers, their chemical constituents, fungus, and relationship to us as humans. It's so nice. it's great. If it came here in the 70s and it grows in someone's garden like some sort of pamphorous grass, that's uh -huh. great I can't really do an awful lot with it apart from weave a few bits and pieces it's, it's, historically I haven't done a lot with it in, in here in the uh, native British Isles if it's something that we've used timelessly as a medicine is legitimately the chemical compounds in there are the sort of thing that we make medicine from today synthetically reproduced okay so let's use something like Hawthorne okay Cretaceous monogyna Mono meaning singular produces one berry, gyna female part of the plant. Mm -hmm. Okay, so inside there, inside the tree are these cardiac glyceroids. Okay, there are chemical compounds which are some of the key components in today's modern variant of angina medicine. That's where we learn okay. that's where we learn about that stuff mm -hmm. and how it works. So I'm right I think I'm right in saying that, okay? So I could pretty much do that with most of the flora and fauna out there in the UK right now. And that's that level of knowledge I wanted to take this to, mm -hmm. and I wanted to really be able to put myself head and shoulders above mm -hmm. um, other people in the market on that quest for knowledge. And John was the place to go to learn that, to, to glean all that information mm -hmm. from, um, coupled with live experience of being in survival situations mm -hmm. of of hardship, of you know, quite frankly, eleven years of being a bootleg yeah. <laughs> and multiple tours. So coming into the market with both qualifications. Uh, understanding the natural world and and having had experience in the natural world you yeah. know nothing prepares you for what <laughs> marine training dartmoor norway extreme cold 50 degree extreme hot mm -hmm. carrying 70 kilos of kit you know just the stuff you go through and experience is so far and above and beyond it's just extremes all mm -hmm. the time um 
and that really helps as well because you can draw on that knowledge and that experience mm-hmm. when you're when you're teaching clients and taking people on mini expeditions and bits and pieces. So you mentioned about you just said then teaching clients taking people on mini expeds. Yeah. As as a whole, what kind of services do you offer? We we had a chat offline when we got here about the kindergarten. Um, yeah. Well, so so we grew so it grew quite quickly. We Hidden Valley Bushcraft was is the brand is is the logo is. Um, a lot of our social media channels all started there. It enabled m- me to really continue to hide myself behind that brand, <laughs> keep myself okay. safe, and I yep. don't really want to be telling the whole world about me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be known for the bushcraft first, and then maybe a bit about some of my more interesting backstory. Got it. We'll continue to come out over the next year or two, uh, but we'll, we'll keep that there for now. <laughs> um, the Woodland Kindergarten was born out of necessity we once we'd established the camp and everything was up and running we applied for changing permission of the land to educational resource status mm-hmm. and as, as part of that we wanted to start a school so being the way we are we put the logo together trademarked it uh, started all the policies and procedures um, got in touch became Ofsted registered went through the whole process fortunately enough um, at the same time I was being urged to go on television to do this kind of uh, show uh, with Karen Brady, where where the Raw Means charity, I believe, were approached by 2-4 Productions in Plymouth, saying we're looking for a service lever who's doing something a bit different, and, and we'd like to follow them for a year, and, and my name came out of a hat. Mm-hmm. So I said no initially, because I didn't want to appear on a screen, and I was mm-hmm. still kind of wired up that way, right. um, and very much struggling with, with all that stuff. I couldn't talk to a camera. And uh, I was assigned a media minder, and the boss talked to me around. Um, you went out and did it. Absolutely hoofing bloke, Mister Mister Cy Tucker, if he's listening. Yeah. And um, yeah, and he helped me. Helped me. You know, and I met Karen. She's an amazing woman. She's not scary. You know, you watch The Apprentice, and she's quite kind of yeah, yeah. hard. And uh-huh. she's nah, she's really, really lovely woman. And her and Louise got on really well. And, and Louise has been massively inspired by uh, well, we both have by mm-hmm. by Karen. Um, Sorry to all the West Ham fans out there. Always kick off. <laughs> always kick off about, from, you know. Um, so, so the Woodland Kindergarten was born. We passed that inspection, uh, initial inspection with uh, with me. So, Ofsted didn't want to be filmed. We had two ITV cameramen in. So again, that no cuff, too tough thing yep. is happening. You're thrown in the deep end more than usual. Mm-hmm. It's bad enough you've got Ofsted, you know, looking at every single element, something that they've never seen before. You've now got two ITV cameramen mm. or, or two four production cameramen in the in the cabin. I felt like I was on my driving test all over again. Right. It was horrendous, but I got through it. We got through it, and we passed. Sweet. Now fast forward the clock, three years later, we've just had our Ofsted inspection. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is our first proper live one. Okay. The last thing that the inspector said verbally was, "I can't give this anything other than an outstanding." Which, which is the highest which is absolutely bonkers for our first one we are over the moon we've worked really really hard mm-hmm. um so my role <laughs> is pretty much i've just regraded the entire camp as in physically took 10 inches of soil off off the t- of, of wood chip that's been building up over the years while i've been protecting the areas mm-hmm. of main use i've taken that wood chip off that i've brought in painstakingly ikea bag or wheelbarrow at a time and i've replaced it with new stuff 
and I've used that rich soil, which is what it's turned into now, to mm-hmm. replace other bits of the woodland. So you'll right, see right. that on the social media. Okay. Uh, so it's been regraded, so it's more level and all that kind of good stuff. Um, made umpteen improvements to the cabin, uh, guttering and you know, steps and all that kind of stuff. So we have a little conservation cabin, which is our sort of staff room. Mm-hmm. We are a completely off-grid. 50, 50 weeks of the year, those children are in the outdoors completely wind snow rain they're yeah. out there right now and it's not a nice day in bristol and they'll have the campfire on um nice. okay so we're based on all the principles of forest school we're not necessarily uh, mary montessori's version of education and nor are we mr fred steiner we are we're our own version mm-hmm. of a modern forest school we are completely outdoors so i'm teaching elements of bushcraft uh the forest school teachers are doing all sorts of outdoor related activities with the kids and on a daily basis they're interacting with the wildlife in the woodland mm-hmm. they see the rabbits um, we just spotted a stoat the other day which was quite cool what's a um, stoat stoat is in the mustelid family so it's uh, planted grade so it plants all of its feet on the ground uh, it's a bit like a weasel very similar it's got a white front mm-hmm. small mousy little head and uh, it's a, it's a sort of quite a, a predatory uh, creature oh. and you'll see them in the woods so okay. the old classic totally different but weaselly seen <laughs> I've not heard that I've not heard that um, a bit like a ferret or a mink uh, they sometimes get mixed up and you don't see them very often no they're quite they're quite you know kind of secretive in the open um, we have a lot of birds of prey here in the Chew Valley as well we've mm-hmm. got buzzards and things so they're not they're not overly going to want to stick their head above the parapet alright understood but they'll be hunting for all sorts of bits and pieces and small um, rodents etc mm-hmm. so it's a really positive sign to see that as well as the deer that come through the woodland mm-hmm. um, we use camera traps to capture the images uh, which also helps probably keep off all the trespassers <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But it's uh, it's completely tucked away, private woodlands, so no dog poo or anything like that. Whereas okay. a lot of other forest schools will often use public land. Okay. Um, but you know you're running the risk there of dog owners not picking up the muck and then children interacting with mm-hmm. it. So that's another thing that kind of is that security of a private site. Um, swings. I've built all kinds of bits and pieces using natural features. There's a beautiful crack willow that comes out of the stream, and it's like the perfect balance beam set of swings it's got everything okay. for three to five year olds to mm-hmm. learn to climb a tree and just as you and i did mm-hmm. i think that is it's fundamentally awesome so um and no iphones no iphones <laughs> no, well, no kids actually, with iphones well you say that they do there's a very real need to uh, interact with educate uh, with um, technology so we do have a whole array of like a technology box with um all sorts of bits and pieces that get brought down. One of the lads brought down something for the school the other day. It was amazing. It was a DJ box that ran on Pusser's D-cell batteries with like really? scra- scratching decks and things and make loads of different noises. Yeah. So they were playing with that. Old keyboards that Louise has pilfered from the uh, police station when they were getting thrown out. And um, of course the iPads that we use, uh, I mean, you've got kids, right? So, so yeah. do you, are you familiar with Tapestry? which is an app that preschools can use so that um, little Johnny's at preschool, he does something, for instance, he picks up a pen and one-handed draws something or other, okay, so mark making that would come under, Mm -hmm. and uh, the teacher would then kind of 
take a photo or a video of this happening in the moment, sort of in the moment observations as it's known, and would then write, uh, little Johnny showed great dexterity, one-handed, grasping the pen with, uh, yeah, yeah. with the correct grip, mm -hmm. and, and proceeded to uh, put his initials on the piece of paper and then send that straight to your mobile phone. Okay, so you can get that footage of that moment happening right there and then, and then a, a write-up wow. of, of how that's showing progress. That's pretty cool. That is awesome, isn't it? That is. So, that's, so you're, you're so, blending it. So we exactly we're coming at this thing from from many angles. So nice. so we're using that kind of cross between traditional skills and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the kids are learning. They're watching me make fire every single day down there. All the teachers, mm -hmm. they're watching. I've kind of done lots of in-house training um, with with our two amazing teachers, and they'll they'll happily use. Um, use knives to, to make these beautiful feather sticks to kind of get the fire started okay. and the children are, are, are seeing all this all the time you know the kids are getting involved with chopping vegetables they've got their own their own cooking box mm -hmm. so they make a soup you know or, or whatever it is they're doing so they we fully encourage them you know we're, we're risk aware not risk adverse and I think that's a very important yeah. thing in this day and age yeah. is to encourage them to explore the woodland um, you know we're, we're there we're monitoring and it, it's all about the language, you know, if a child says, can I climb this tree, rather than say yes or no, um, you say, well, do you feel comfortable climbing the tree? How high, how high could you climb the tree? How high could you climb the tree? Climb as high as you feel comfortable, you know? Height of X, and I just put my hand next to my head. That child is going to grow up forever thinking it can only grow, it can only climb as high as. But you're setting parameters, mm -hmm. you're setting boundaries, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, of course. Which, which are needed but equally can be constrictive. Of course. So, limited. It's, all, so it's all about that language mm -hmm. that you have with the children, that dialogue, and talking to them in a way that encourages them to grow. The term we use is support and scaffold them into growing into mm -hmm. being kind of entrepreneurially minded little people mm -hmm. because the early years foundation scheme and early years education is all about getting them to think. Uh, for instance, if I did an activity with them and I said, we I mean, you know, today, uh, we're going to have a go at making whatever. Mm -hmm. Here's one I've made, okay. I don't want you to copy this, I want you to make your own thing, is what you need to be encouraging. Otherwise, they're going to sit down and all try to copy and make the same thing, maybe not come up to that standard, and then. Right. So, so you just need to encourage them for, to be creative and kind mm -hmm. of and push that. Because once they get into school, the way modern education is now, it's all going to be very maths, English, science heavy, mm -hmm. homework. Um, curriculum they've got to follow and yeah. stick to. Mm -hmm. So certainly for that first part, you need to really let them grow, let them become quite kind of outward thinking and forward thinking and mm -hmm. uh, think outside the box, which is yeah. again another thing we're good at yeah. in the course. Absolutely. Um, so yes, yeah, so that the, so the wooden kindergarten was born. Um, we've just had that absolutely outstanding result. Um, the other thing we do, the third tranche which I'm very passionate about is the Woodland Warrior Program. Mm -hmm. And that basically is a um, formalized version, uh, albeit without the bottle of rum and staring into the campfire, <laughs> right. okay, of, of what I kind of went through. And I, I sat down and I poured hours into the process. And from an, a sort of EQ, emotional intelligence side of things, looked at what were the fundamental factors which transpire across almost every person leading the armed forces certainly and emergency service personnel mm -hmm. who are going through that identity crisis that kind of dealing with PTSD dealing with being told you've got a diagnosis for instance mm -hmm. for a certain degree 
we're susceptible to becoming that diagnosis and things get worse before they get better mm-hmm. um, you know and, and helping them to find that sense of tribe again so they come to us as individuals this is the way I describe it and they leave as a tribe sorry is this this is for so this is veterans a, and civilians yeah, this is for veterans and emergency <laughs> service personnel okay. so try service yeah um, it's its own CIC, so it sits separately in a side to Hidden Valley Bushcraft and Kindergarten kind of support each other, mm-hmm. and they come under that Hidden Valley Bushcraft banner, but the Woodman Warrior program has its own trademarked logo, is its own entity, mm-hmm. is its own beast. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very fortunately, we've had support from, again, from the Royal Marines Charity when we initially got up and rolling, mm-hmm. um, and they said, look, we'll, we'll pay for a couple of places to come on this course and see how they get on. And then a bit further down the line, so I carried on doing that for about two years. I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't doing, you know, just purely out of, I was working, in fact, I was working seven day weeks to accrue the extra funding to tell myself that I was getting paid for <laughs> working. Right, right, right. You know, I was just, just doing it. Out of, I, just, I could see that it just needed to be done. Yeah. It felt right. And it, yeah, so I was helping other people to just kind of work through stuff that this year or last end part last part of last year we got approached by the endeavor fund yeah the endeavor fund are obviously absolutely massive um it's a charity that prince harry's obviously involved with and head of um and they had heard from multiple sources our name kept coming up and this Woodland Warrior program kept coming up and 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 i'd gone and done a talk at facebook um, at the inaugural Facebook event, I was lucky enough to be on the stage there, kind of sharing some bits of my story and doing a bit of a, you know, bit of a public speaking event. One of the crowd members there was somebody who was something to do with the endeavour, who then approached us and said, "We want to know more about this. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a charity? Are you a CIC? Is this something that we can support? How does it work?" And I basically explained the premise behind encouraging people to. Um, go from being long-term sick or what is known as or business into rediscovering themselves in the outdoors getting them to hopefully to a point where they're willing to undertake adventure again Mm -hmm. to step outside the box to you know start small micro adventures in the UK and I I offer that around the Chew Valley here and we've got some amazing natural features we can share with people we can take them up to the Iron Age Hill Fort um, and, and get 25 mile views in every direction and you can just see how close urbanisation and Bristol is off one side and then this beautiful green oh, landscape yeah. the other and it really really hits home quite hard mm-hmm. how close things are, are being run here in the UK mm-hmm. and the impact on, on, uh, on the natural environment um, you can see right across the Yeo Valley we boast a beautiful lake here which is sloping <coughs> by the sea on a, on a on a nice summer's day it's got a michelin star um accredited pub which owns the fish and chips so salt and malt amazing fish and chips mm-hmm. so these are all things that people get to experience so I'll, I'll take them up to the hill for other woodland owners have since come forward and said look uh we hear about what you're doing so our local community are really starting to get behind everything we're doing now and are saying, look, you can use sections of our woodland because they know as a result, people are learning how to do pruning cuts, are leaving firewood piles, are leaving no trace, are, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And so 
for a woodland donor, why would you not get involved? You know, you, you're going to yeah. get some woodland management out of it. Exactly. Um, it won't cost you anything, and it's a win-win. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's been happening, and then they go via the uh, the, the secret waterfall. That might be, you'll, you'll see that on my social media. This beautiful 15-foot sheet of fallen water. Um, they'll get fish and chips and, and and bits and pieces on on route round. You know, nothing nothing better than that when you put your day sack down. Oh, yeah. just starting to feel a bit licked after about 12k and you're thinking hot wet and a bag of chips it, oh my god <laughs> back in the game <laughs> yeah and then uh, and then finishing up with the ancient stone circle which is the third largest and oldest in europe uh, i think or certainly in great britain actually um which is just down the road at stanton drew which is literally half a mile from my woodland okay uh coming back to the wood for a bit of a debrief wets mm-hmm. teas and stickies and then um going our different ways now the beauty of it is it's not the field and that's the biggest message I've got to veterans who want to come out and because sometimes you get a bit of the well there's nothing you can't teach me about the field right right for a start it's not the field okay it's white light till first light it's cortex till index it's comfortable Mm -hmm. it's being happy it's it's not tactically miserably living under a poncho in a a bowl shape in the ground that's filling up with water Mm -hmm. front facing enemy you know it's it's still all the camaraderie and more and you're going to learn a whole bunch of stuff and to and to look at the outdoors in a way that you quite frankly don't get to when you're serving because obviously everything's ops driven everything's tack right. but you can be you can do this yeah. comfortably yeah you can yeah, learn yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. enjoy yourself you do can, it comfortably you can, make, you can make yourself some nice raised beds from natural yeah. materials you mm-hmm. can uh, learn about different ways of making um laying out your fire different materials learn to read the trees so you're getting the right type of firewood so you're you're having to use a third of the less effort to collect the right type of firewood that's going to see you through with with more btus with more heat coming out of it Mm -hmm. than you would do collecting endless amounts of softwood waking up at three in the morning going with a shudder going oh god i've got to collect some more firewood head torch on out your bag miserable experiences you know so um it's all about becoming uh, comfortable in mm-hmm. that in that natural environment and really starting to work with nature not against it right okay so soldering is is actually quite unnatural you're, you're in the outdoors you're in the elements and you're always testing yourself and you're always going against the elements mm-hmm. you're always relying on your webbing and on your kit yeah. okay and what I'm trying to promote and teach people is the dark art of of living uh, you know very much like our commando forefathers is, is living in harmony with the land mm. and then and knowing having that depth of knowledge to know more and carry less yeah let's face it we carry a lot <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. well i mean i think just as as human beings all those skills from way back in that we've forgotten them all and you're just reteaching them to people well it's interesting you say that because here in the uk and i'll just share this with you um it's unconscious time but um first world war mm-hmm. right who were the first people into the guns in France? You tell me. All our woodworkers, our lower classes, okay, all the okay. privates in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the regiments from all the different. So hundreds of years of knowledge wiped out, okay, thanks to the war. Young men, coppice workers, mm-hmm. whose fathers, fathers, fathers were working in the woods, you know. Mm. Our, our, our forestry industry took a big hit, plus us sending over every piece of available timber to France to prop up duck boards for um, for propping up all of the um, the tunnels for propping up all of the right. you know mm-hmm. swathes of forest were getting cut down for the mm-hmm. war effort. Come World War Two, what little knowledge had survived that mm-hmm. goes straight back into the guns again. Right. Okay, some of which and again vast swathes of forest. It literally killed our forestry industry here in the mm-hmm. UK, murdered it, mm-hmm. and then we relied on the empire that was 
to bring in lots of wood, which is why, I mean, I'm, I'm in my kitchen here and I'm looking across this family heirloom, it's a chest, okay, and it's made of some sort of tropical hardwoods, mahogany, iroko, you know, all that kind of stuff. We were buying in stacks of stuff from India and from elsewhere to kind of backfill the requirement for wood, right. for furniture, mm -hmm. etc. And then at some point around the late 60s and 70s, you know, the panic sets in, actually, we should really be replanting. What kind of crop mm. is going to get back up to speed? It's not going to take 400 years. Yeah. And the answer is pine. So now our landscape is littered with Scots pine, Dougie fir, etc. that we, we desperately wanted to grow in plantations to get up to diameter so that we could have this this industry. And to a degree, some of it has worked, but on the main the main side of things, it, it hasn't. And so we, you know, we really did put ourselves in the doo-doo with with those kind of massive events. So um, it changed our landscape, not just not just our, you know, generations of knowledge lost. It changed our landscape yeah. as well. Understood. And so the more you learn about who we were and where we come from, it really helps us to learn about where we're going and right. what needs to be mm -hmm. done to turn that around. Yeah. So on, on a sort of conservation front, but also on a sort of personal uh, personal journey as as, as humans and, and mm -hmm. how we move forward with everything, looking after our uh, our planet mm -hmm. there we go sound like a right eco world <laughs> check me out <laughs> so what is if you can discuss it the future the future what are your exciting plans okay. for the future going forward uh, without giving away too much there is I'm writing a book okay uh, I am going to be doing a bit more talking public speaking and starting to try to grow into myself a bit more you know mm -hmm. um, Hidden Valley Bushcraft is still going to be uh, our baby and I'm still going to continue to drive that but aside from that um, I'm going to try to grow into uh, being me Nick Goldsmith a um, bit, bit more of a sort of uh, advocate for mental health awareness and, and kind of promoting that positive growth mindset um, giving talks on bits and pieces and really kind of um, you know on the conservation front as well I mean I've sort of spent an awful lot of time going to bed reading all this really pesty material on conservation and you know the, the forestry commission bulletin and really the ins and outs of what and how and why and mm -hmm. just looking at our landscape here in the Chew Valley I've, I've already set myself the task of kind of getting the community here on board with with replanting trees and what you know and, and lots of other conservation projects um, but wider than that you know being a sort of specialist in the UK British Isles I've done a few bits and pieces where last year I went I was lucky enough to get involved with the um, with the Endeavour Fund I was invited to go to Africa to Lesotho with uh, the Village Charity mm -hmm. and and uh, put put a lot of my skill set and some of the other veterans to good use where we uh, ripped out uh, an old hospital and turned it into uh, a skills college for young boys in particular out there who don't get an education because the way their culture is set up mm -hmm. they become a shepherd boy from age five mm -hmm. and not sort of entitled to an education teaching them um you know maths english uh carpentry um i was lucky enough to teach them and show them i was astonished they don't have or have forgotten uh, native indigenous skills they don't know how to make fire by friction okay. so i had to re-show them yeah. a method of doing that um, which was amazing. I found the oldest person I could get 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 uh, get to speak to and said, "Look, do you remember ever being shown anything like this?" No. The answer was matches. Matches. Oh, really? Everybody kept saying matches. So I was, you know, so I, I I did this. I put myself out there. There was a 
blinking f- camera crew there so again no cuff too tough right hand picking through bits of wood and off cuts of branches and all sorts that were if essentially their firewood pile took a punt on what i thought might work did the carpentry right live in front of them made the whole set the bow the drill the spindle the half board everything <laughs> epic and um and made fire by friction made a flame and they used some sort yeah. of local bush which had uh, you could smell it had like a volatile oil running through it of some sort to uh, to blow up blow up that tinder bundle so uh, I'm waiting for that footage to come back at some point yeah um, but but it was a, a proud moment for me because I, I you know I do sort of proof in the pudding and it keeps you current and it, it's a good test of skills um, but they were buzzing they were buzzing to see that it doesn't have to be matches you know yeah they could see that that relationship with the landscape could still be there for them if they want it and um, as soon as I turned my back I left them with the kit and they were practicing day and night with it really? oh the boys they loved it yeah, it was really good that is cool really so cool. I was really lucky but yeah so lots lots of stuff moving forward um, I need to try and integrate a bit more it's very difficult for me I spend a lot of my time in the woods um, <laughs> that is, essentially is my life you mm-hmm. know I'm, I am very much day to day if you want to get hold of me you're best off sending Louise an email because I'm going to be swinging a chainsaw I'm mm-hmm. going to be down in the woods teaching something or on an expedition or you know um, I live and breathe that thing that I do mm-hmm. that said if I'm now going to try and start growing into being a bit more of a sort of uh, you, know, you know kind of presenter type yep. um, I'm going to have to learn to become more comfortable with getting on the train and going to places and oh. it's it's a challenge for me and it's something yeah. I'm going to have to suck up I guess working on yourself work on myself some mm-hmm. more you know um, personal development I don't think there's any of us at any point we can we can all constantly work on ourselves mm-hmm. you know uh, we can all claim that we're we're the with the finished article but no you know think, think a little bit every day mate <laughs> yeah you that's know, start by getting the train from here into town if there is one and get more and comfortable with it you build those journeys up start yeah. in the slow times then get onto the rush hour stuff exposure stuff that's what it is mate yeah. it's baby steps mate but it's important as well well yeah and it's it's an easy easy one to overlook and, and avoidance behavior is a is a key thing um <laughs> just spin a quick one last year i had to cross a massive maze field mm-hmm. with uh, a client and um at this point the client is naving so i'm now the check nav right. and uh he says right yeah we're going to make our way across here from this wood block to this wood block that's the shortest route through this farmer's maze field and i'm not going to lie i just want to look at the maze in, in its entirety in its height and was really having a moment based on the story you told me at the beginning some of those yeah that sort of stuff and uh he clocked it he's like are you okay and i was like yeah 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 yeah, fine you know you know i better go first yeah so so i had to lead the charge i just gotta sort of put my hands into sort of a um a snow shovel shape put my head down and just go marched across the field yeah. uh was not comfortable whatsoever and i was sweating when i got to the other side of you know physical reaction but yeah. but i did it and um you know, look, no one died. It's not the Taliban. And that's the thing to tell yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not the Taliban, mm-hmm. is it? It's it's a field in 2019 mm-hmm. and uh, it's a sunny day and you're in the Chew Valley and life is good. Yes. There you so go. uh, you've, you've got to just keep working on these things. But, um, you know, if I can do it, everyone else can. There you go. Now, I know you're on Instagram. Uh, I've seen you very active on Instagram. Yeah. People yep. listening to this, they want to find out a little bit more about Hidden Valley. They maybe want to go on courses, that kind of stuff. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on so Hidden Valley Bushcraft uh, on Instagram. I've now started a separate page, which is at Nick Goldsmith Official. 
Okay, so that's me starting to grow into myself a bit more. Um, Twitter, we are HV Bushcraft, mm -hmm. and uh, I should think you probably wouldn't be too hard to find at Nick Goldsmith Ten or something like that on okay. there. Um, Facebook, we have pages for the obviously Hidden Valley Bushcraft has its own page. The Woodland Warrior, for obvious reasons, currently is a secret page. So oh. the way this works is you would send an email off to uh, Woodland Warrior program.org okay that's its own website mm -hmm. and you'd see the form fill out the form right you can do that with or without diagnosis okay it's non we, we don't judge on that side of things um, fill out the form send off the information and then if there's space we'll load you onto a course okay. we deliberately take small numbers and to deliver a high quality product it's not about money it's not mm -hmm. about getting people through the door it's about helping people and actually making a difference mm -hmm. um, so six people per course uh, alongside myself and, and one other that works with me uh, down in the woods and then so that's 72 people a year coming through on those weekends once you have completed that weekend okay and you've done that first initial bit you're then invited onto that page and then I start to invite you onto things like the rural work experience days where yeah. you can learn hedge laying you can learn dry stone walling you can work in a Michelin star garden and have all the scram that comes out for lunch mm -hmm. for a day and see how that works and it's about encouraging people to get into some of these uh, quirky rural um, employments mm -hmm. for instance hedge laying currently I think the council and the council never pay very well are paying 10 pound a meter and you can lay 50 meters a hedge a day that's 500 quid okay. think about that for all those people who are thinking mm -hmm. I'm gonna go CP mm -hmm. think about this there is a gap in the market where all the old boys are hanging up their bill hooks and don't want to work in the and you know and everyone else is picking up a drone controller mm -hmm. Okay, and the market's getting saturated. Right now, there is a gap in hedge laying. And because it's a tradition and because it's part of our heritage, the council are paying for hundreds of meters, hundreds of miles of hedgerow to be laid all over Somerset, Sussex. Every county's got its own style. You know, Prince Charles is massively behind this. It, and it's, uh, it's better than laying barbed wire hedges because it's better for conservation, it's better for wildlife. It's an all-round win-win and there's money in it to be had so privately you could probably get 12 meters to 14 meters that's 12 to 14 pound a meter and you can lay aim to lay 50 meters a day well there you so, go if, if, if that I mean, sounds that, appealing to you that in itself is a, you know, if you if you want to have your truck uh, your, your coffee your dog radio on yeah and you're happy and to a decent coin to swing the blade all day long yeah and and it's fizz in the bag you know as well so uh, there you go two birds one stone boom well, mate, I'm going to get all of your, all the, the relative, relative, relevant links uh, <laughs> to you. your website, your social media, the, the, the program, everything. And I'll put it all in the show notes to this. Oh, uh, thank you so much. To it, um, all over our social media. And then hopefully, you know, it will drive some traffic your way. You get in, help some more people yeah. and everyone else or a bunch of other people will discover the benefits of, of bushcraft and living out in the woods that you have. But thank you, mate, for your time. I know I've taken up enough of your time. I appreciate it. It's been very interesting for me to learn a little bit more because I do sit on the, the sidelines and observe people. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. No, oh, mate, thank you. Well, there you go. I'm sure you'll agree with me that Nick has a huge passion for nature and for living out in the wilderness. And he's done a great job of turning that passion into a profession. Now, I promised you at the beginning that I'd share some great news to you at the end of this podcast. And since speaking with Nick, he has 
got in contact with me and told me that Ofsted came in to inspect what it is that he does. And after a what I think was a very nerve-wracking, intense time, he was pleased to let me know that Ofsted graded him an outstanding provider across all areas of his business. So Hidden Valley Bushcraft and everything it does is now rated outstanding by Ofsted, which is a an incredible, incredible achievement. So Nick, if you're listening, well done for that, mate. Keep doing what it is you're doing because as well as you enjoying it and living your dream, you're also motivating and inspire others to do the same. Guys, that's it for this week. Don't forget to leave a comment on the podcast, share it with all your oppos, let everybody know what you think. And I'll be back again in another episode very, very soon.